Exodus chapter 37. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, similar to as I did last week. Uh, it's too much text uh, to read this morning. But if you will recall, uh, I don't know how many of you were with our study, and we are all the way back to, let's say, Exodus 25, Exodus 30. Some of what we see here, as a matter of fact, not some of it, all of what we see here, uh, not exact wording, but all of it in context, we have already covered because God reiterates, remember up on uh, the mountain, he gets the instructions and Moses relays, these are the instructions I'm getting. And here we see the carrying out of the instructions. So they are repeated. Now this makes it extra hard if you preach to a church verse by verse, because you're like, Lord, I already kind of preached this entire chapter in 25 and in chapter 30 and in other places. But you know, whenever God mentions something more than once, he wants it mentioned more than once. Amen? Actually, things he only mentions once, he, mentioned, he wants mentioned more than once. But whatever God puts a premium on and whatever the Lord says, this is really important stuff, even sometimes when we don't understand why it would be important, it's very important. So, you know, it's one of those things that I say, Lord, all right, I've preached these same things about the Ark of the Covenant. I've preached about these things. What would you have us to learn this second time through? Well, turn with me to Exodus 37. We'll see what the Lord has prepared for us today. Again, follow with me because I'm not going to read every verse, but I'll tell you when to kind of skip forward. Uh, starting out, we'll re- read verses 1 and 2, Exodus chapter 37. Then Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits was its length, and a cubit and a half was its width, and a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside, and he made a molding of gold all around it. Skip down to verse 9, same chapter, chapter 37. The cherubim spread out their wings above and covered the mercy seat with their wings. They faced one another. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. So again, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid with pure gold made of acacia wood. The wings of the cherubim stretching out, touching each other, covering the entire mercy seat or the top of the Ark. Verse 10 He made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Now this is for the table of showbread that's probably marked in your Bible. Uh, Let's skip down to verse 17. He also made the lampstand of pure gold, of hammered work. He made the lampstand. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, its flowers were of the same piece. And six branches came out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand of one side, and three branches of the lampstand of the other side. There were three bowls made like almond blossoms one on, on one branch, with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch, with an ornamental knob and flower. And so for the six branches uh, coming out of the lampstand, drop down to verse 23, and he made it seven lamps, again, one center branch with the three coming out on each side, and he made it seven lamps with wicks and trimmers and its trays of pure gold. Verse 25, skip to 25. He made the incense of altar of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit, its width a cubit. It was square, and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. Verse 26, and he overlaid it with pure gold. And finally, verse 29. 
He also made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices according to the work of the perfumer. Now turn it with me if you can uh, over. We didn't do this last time, but we will do it now uh, since we have an opportunity to kind of look at this from a different angle. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we just read Exodus 30. Hold your place in Exodus 37 because we'll come back to that. But turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Starting with verse 1. So we just heard the Lord speaking through Moses and what they did, how they made these elements within the uh, holy place and, and also the holy of holies. And now let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, what, uh, what the New Testament is in part, it's not its only role, but part of what the New Testament is, is it's a commentary on the Old Testament. In other words, it reveals things in the Old Testament, so let's look at what the writer of Hebrews has to say regarding the tabernacle. Verse 1, that indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. That's speaking of the holy place, not the holy of holies. We'll talk about the difference. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, also known as the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which was the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, also called the tablets, the testimony also called the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, nor can we this morning because there's too much to cover. Now when these things had been thus prepared, verse 6, the priest always went in to the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Now drop down uh, to verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way in which the holy of, holy, holy of all was not yet, yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. In other words, the first tabernacle did not fulfill all of what the Lord would reveal. Look at verse 9. It was symbolic in the present time. Verse 11, drop down to verse 11. But Christ. It's a setup. The whole tabernacle is for the full real, uh, revelation, the full realization of the tabernacle is the tabernacle, the Lord himself, Emmanuel, God with us, who would tabernacle with us. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. Because remember that Jesus was the tabernacle itself. He represents the high priest in the tabernacle, and he represents the sacrifice on the altar. So he's everything. He represents the blood on the mercy seat. It's all Christ. That's why you can circle in your Bible, but Christ. Everything in the tabernacle ultimately points to who? The high priest, the holy one of God, the tabernacle come down out of heaven to dwell among men. The tabernacle all points to Jesus. He's the incense. He's the fragrance to God. He's the blood on the mercy seat. He's the one receiving the glory of the cherubim. But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. 
I go back to Exodus 37. We don't have time to take too, mu- too much more with Hebrews 9. But I just wanted you, you can go back and you can study Hebrews 9 yourself. Matter of fact, all of Hebrews will give you a better understanding of the Old Testament as you study the book of Hebrews. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, Reflections of Mercy. Is that your life? A reflection of mercy? Reflections of of mercy, and I've titled, I've uh, broken our text into three parts as I typically do our refuge, our resource, and our reflection. Our refuge, our resource, and our reflection. Some time ago, a gentleman by the name of Dave Hagler, he worked as an umpire in a recreational baseball league. He was pulled over for driving too fast in the snow in Boulder, Colorado. Now, he tried to talk the officer out of giving him a ticket by telling him he was worried about his insurance would go up and how he's normally a safe driver and so on. You ever done that? The officer said that if he didn't like receiving the ticket, he could take the matter to court. At the first game of the next baseball season, Dave Hagler is umpiring behind the plate. And the first batter up is... You guessed it, the police officer. The officer is about to step into the batter's box, and he recognizes the umpire, and the umpire recognizes him, and there's a long pause. The officer asks, so how did things go with the ticket? Mr. Hagler said, you'd better swing at everything. (laughs) Two different men. Two opportunities to give mercy, and neither gave it, right? Both had an opportunity to give mercy, neither did. And hardly a surprise, police officers would, re- would relate to the police officer. Well, you don't understand. I mean, I'm called to uphold the law. He really was speeding. Snow is very dangerous. And then the rest of us can relate to the other guy, Right? <laughs> Well, you don't understand. I normally don't go that fast. I mean, it's so, so, of course, I'm not going to give you any mercy in the batter's box. You're getting strikes. We would all relate to one side, wouldn't we? Depending on what you do for a living. But for the believer, believer in Christ, you and I have already received mercy. Already received mercy, haven't we? Genuinely received mercy from the Lord. And yet we continue to receive mercy. The scripture says his mercies are new how many days? Every day. We've been talking about this a lot in the last few months. Don't ask God for fairness. That is not what you ever want to ask the Lord for. Because fairness will put you in a really awkward position with the Lord. Because if he's fair, he must judge us because we don't meet his standard. That would be fairness. The officer would rightly say, no, I did fairness is, here's the law, and you broke it. Love to help you. But mercy is when God says, I know you broke the law, and I'm going to let you off. Amen? We've received mercy. We continue to receive mercy. It should, should, should impact every aspect of our life. It should. It doesn't always because we forget we've received mercy, right? We forget that God has been so good. We forget that he's given us far more 
in the way of forgiveness and beyond that, and we take for granted what we've been given. We were just singing that song. I love that song at the end. It was this King of Glory. One of the one of the verses in it, you might have saw it, says, who is this king of mercy? King of mercy. That's not really the kings of the world today, is it? You would think, if you're imprisoning a man like Pastor Saeed for doing nothing but starting an orphanage, that you would say, you know, he probably doesn't need to be tortured, beaten, bones broken, you know, whatever we're doing, it probably doesn't make any sense to do that to someone who was actually just building an orphanage. That's not even being merciful to let him go. That's just being practical. And yet, we have to beg. Mankind has to beg mankind for mercy when sometimes nothing's even been done wrong. But the different with us and the Lord, we actually have transgressed the Lord. We actually have resisted Him. We actually have rebelled against Him. We actually have put Him on a cross. We actually have spit in His faith. We actually have neglected Him. And He still gives us what? Mercy. Every day. I get it every week. I get it every minute. I get it every day. Mercy from the Lord. Let's take a look at our first section, our refuge. Now, some of you, if you're here for the first time, or you haven't been here in a while, you might say, how are you getting all this out of the Ark of the Covenant? And, you know, I saw a table overlaid with gold, and, you know, I, I, incense, and acacia wood, and all these other things. Where's all this coming from? That's why I pulled you over to Hebrews 9 for just a minute. These things are symbolic of what the Lord wants to do in us. Because Jesus, he fulfills all of these things perfectly, doesn't he? But how about you and I? Do we fulfill them all perfectly? No, but they show us the nature of our Savior. They show us how God wants to work in us to make us living sacrifices that we've been talking about not only on Sundays, but even our Wednesday study in Romans. We look first at our refuge. Moses is commanded, and of course he obeys that command to build the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Ark of the Covenant... Uh, in addition to containing these holy items, such as the testimony, the Ten Commandments. And he would have these things inside the Ark of the Covenant, but it was at the mercy seat or at the top of it where the, uh, the cherubim's wings would touch, which would be a picture of the throne room of God, a really tiny, tiny picture of the throne room of God because it's a rather small little uh, rectangular um, container overlaid with gold. The lid of the mercy seat, again, it was made with pure gold, which signifies the purity and holiness of God. God has no sin. His presence is pure. We come into it with an impurity uh, that can only be covered by the blood of Jesus, which is also pure. So the pure gold is the presence of God. It's the holiness of God, the throne of God, with the two cherubims, the holy angels that cover their faces, and they continue to say, holy, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, uh, made of wood but overlaid with gold. Again, uh, we see also some of that, the humanity of Christ, uh, the God-man, the, the, the fact that he was all man and all God. But the, tri- the primary attribute of the Ark of the Covenant is holiness. Holiness. Nothing, no sin, no impurity 
can come into the presence of God. You have the two tablets of stone inside, the Ten Commandments etched by God himself, the very finger of God wrote these perfect commandments. They were also to place that jar of manna, uh, which would never spoil inside uh, the ark. And this was uh, a picture of that that sustained them while they went uh, through the wilderness. They had Aaron's rod in there that, was, uh, that budded, the sign of the priesthood that was given to Aaron. And then there was the, uh, these three articles that were to go inside this small box, but it wasn't that the box would sit there and have no other purpose. It was there that once a year, inside behind the veil, remember when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil? Because inside the holy place, the holy place is a, is a rectangle inside a rectangle. And the holy place, the rectangle that's inside the larger outer walls of the tabernacle, the rectangle, the holy place sits there, and there's a dividing between the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy place, you've got the curtain there, and everything inside the holy place is the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the place that the high priest could go how many times a year? Once. Once a year had to have all sins confessed, had to be completely clean, had to go in there with no known sin, still covered by the grace of God because none of us, even we have no known sin, we still need God's grace, amen? Even when we have no known sin, we're still imperfect until the day we're in the presence of the Lord. But he had no known sin, all of his own sins confessed, go in there clean, washed once a year and would take the blood and sprinkle it where? The blood was to be sprinkled on the mercy seat, the day of atonement. And the Hebrew word for that, kafar, is to cover or to purge or to make reconciliation, to cover over with pitch. And so the Lord would have the high priest come in that once a year. And we know that when Jesus died on the cross, the mercy seat is accessible every day of the year. Amen? Because the veil was torn asunder, ripped in two. And now all of us, the Bible says, we've been made kings and priests by his blood. That we have access to Jesus. So when you blow it tomorrow, not trying to bum you out. But sometime tomorrow, you probably will miss the mark of perfection. Some of you said, not me. I, I rarely miss Mondays, I'm extra good because I've been at church. But all of us will miss the mark at some time, even tomorrow, most of us this afternoon. Especially for you guys that watch your team. Good way to mess up. And the ladies say, would you quit mentioning football? I mean, if you ever mention it one more, it's going to mention more. I'm going to have it again. I just, uh, it's been with me for years. My wife says, why? <laughs> but, but the Lord covers us and gives us forgiveness when we, even as believers, we come back to the mercy seat. Mercies are new every day. We come back again. We're back and we're like, Lord, you're not going to believe it. I've done this again. You think God's surprised? No. It's like, yeah, I've seen the future. I know how many times you remade the same mistake. Or how many times you 
almost did what I asked you to do. Almost did what I asked you to do. Where you partially did what I've asked you to do. So it's not always just sins of, and I went out and I lied like crazy. Sometimes it's just God says, go do this, and you only do part of it. It's still sin, isn't it? It still grieves the Holy Spirit, and it must be put under the blood. But the Lord has taken that veil, torn it in two, and we have access. That's our refuge, folks, isn't it? That's our refuge. The world has no refuge for a guilty conscience, do they? The only, the, the only thing before you and I were saved, when we had a guilty conscience, we either had to hope that time would kind of fade it away, or we could drown it out with something else. True? That's how we handled guilt. But then once we're saved, we handle guilt by coming to the mercy seat. And Moses, as godly as he was, needed the mercy seat as much as you and I do, didn't he? He himself would have his own failures and mistakes. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. The last thing in the world you and I want to do is not tell the Lord, I've sinned. Or be, you can't, and being dishonest with God is sinning on top of sin. And it doesn't work anyway because he knows you can't be dishonest with God. You have to say, Lord, not only have I done this, but the thing you're asking me to do, I'll have this honesty with God. All right, my flesh doesn't want to do it. You ever talk to the Lord about that? Lord, you're asking me to do this. My flesh does not want to do it. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. My spirit totally wants to do it. My spirit wants to go out and witness to every single person I run into. My flesh says, bad idea. (laughs) Right? And so you have to have mercy from the Lord. Say, Lord, and also, this is where grace comes in. Grace through the Holy Spirit gives power. But mercy is forgiving those things we've already blown And we come back, Lord, 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 I've blown it. But we don't go once a year. We go every day to our refuge, don't we? Sometimes, more than some, it should be, but the reality is oftentimes we go multiple, but we also are told to go constantly, praying without ceasing, constantly in the presence of the mercy of the Lord, really being refreshed by His mercy. I was listening this morning as I was getting ready to Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, which uh, is where I got saved, and Pastor Fidel was preaching, and he was talking about Peter. And I love anytime someone talks about Peter, I, I relate to Peter, I, I love Peter, I've made a lot of mistakes like Peter, I tend to say what I'm thinking like Peter, so I can relate to Peter. And, uh, and Peter would also put his foot in his mouth sometimes, as I have been known to do many times in my life. But Peter's also mentioned more than any other disciple. Did you know that? More than all the other disciples he's mentioned because he typifies what we all, the fact that he desires to do what the Lord's will is, but he also makes big blunders as well. And that's really all believers. Because we've been saved, and we have this desire to do what God wants to do, but we also have blunders. And how many times would the Lord say, Peter, let me pick you back up. 
Lord, I believe I can walk on water. Doing great. And, and no one else was willing to go out of the boat, by the way. Here he is cruising on the water. I can't do this. <sighs> Lord, pick him back up. Then, Lord, uh, you are the Christ, Son of the living God. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven. A few minutes later, get behind me, Satan. The Lord's talking to Peter again. Because he told the Lord, you can't go to the cross. I mean, you can't go. God forbid that you should die. Uh, all these other folks, they'll deny, they'll deny you. I will never deny you. A couple hours later, I don't know him. Let me curse to make sure you know I don't know him. Right? And then the Lord restores and feed my sheep. He goes on to mature far beyond that, but not to perfection. Even, even later, Paul rebukes him. After he's a mature, he, he's, the, he's the founding pastor there in Jerusalem. So even as he grows, he still needs mercy, doesn't he? And Peter, when you meet him in heaven one day, he can tell you about, oh, no, I got a lot more mercy than that. But I also, because he received mercy, he preached and 3,000 got saved. See, those who have received mercy are better reflections of mercy. Amen? God has given mercy, so we're able to preach. You would have loved, I would have loved, you would have loved to hear Peter preach. You would have heard a passionate man. You would have heard a man that cared about souls and says, no, no, no. Like Paul was the same way. Paul had received so much mercy that both Peter and Paul had that in common, that both of them had received great forgiveness, so they had great hearts for people who had yet to receive forgiveness. But their refuge was the Lord, wasn't it? It's the mercy seat. It's going to the Ark of the Covenant. You and I have access. Are you taking advantage of that access? We come boldly, the book of Hebrews says, into the throne of grace. Amen? First, 2 Corinthians 4.1 says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. You know, when you think about the mercy you receive, you don't lose heart. It actually reminds you that you belong to God, that he's the one that cleans you up, that he's the one that restores you, that he's the one that can fix. Man, I should have never said that. Lord, how, would I, how will I resolve that? Well, I've forgiven you. Now just go and speak my words. Ask for forgiveness. I've already forgiven you. Whether that person forgives you or not is not your call. I forgive you, now go and ask for forgiveness. Go make things right with your brother. Go make things right with your boss. Go do what I've asked you to do. I know you've put it off, but now you've received mercy. I've forgiven you, now just go do it. Matthew 9, 13. I love this passage. I was sharing it with someone this week, but I love it. I was reminded of it, listening to a message by Pastor Damian Kyle uh, Calvary Chapel, Modesto. But go, Matthew 9, 13. You've got to write this verse down. It's so important for the believer. But go and learn what this means. This is Jesus speaking. Guess who he's speaking to? He's speaking to Pharisees. He's speaking to religious hypocrites. People that think they're good, they're better. God's speaking, Jesus speaking to these Pharisees, he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Wow. The Pharisees hardly ever gave mercy. 
They were the police officer that would not listen to, hey, my insurance is going to go up. I don't normally do this. I, you know, or the judge that hears and could has the opportunity to forgive the debt. Nope, sorry, you messed up. The Pharisees, that was the way they lived. If someone broke one little piece of the law, cut them off. I've, had, I've met people who have told me their philosophy is you cross me once, I'll never, you'll never do business with me again. You ever met that person? It says, you, you cross me once, you are on my blank list. Well, I guess no one ever better. Uh, so you're perfect, I understand. I don't need to be perfect. I set my own rules for all y'all, right? But yet the Lord tells us that he desires us to be merciful. Well, what if people aren't merciful to you? Has nothing to do with our command, does it? Pastor Saeed is very merciful even though he's not receiving mercy, except from God. The only place he's receiving genuine mercy is from the Lord. You and I are called to be merciful, and Jesus said, I desire that you learn it. Go and learn this, he said. You must learn to be merciful. It won't come natural to even the believer because your flesh doesn't want to give mercy. It only wants to receive it. Look at the next aspect of our time this morning, the table of showbread, our resource. Why is the table of showbread? Why would it symbolize our resource? Well, according to Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9, the the showbread, it was made of fine flour. It had 12 cakes, one for each of the 12 tribes, right? So there on the table of showbread, one little cake or loaf represented each of the 12 tribes. They were made with fine flour, And uh, they were sprinkled lightly with frankincense, just as the body of Jesus would be as well. Once a week, the bread was replaced, and only the priests could eat the bread. So once a week, that one week, it would stay fresh, and then it would be replaced with a new fresh 12 loaves, but only the priests could eat it. He had the one loaf for every tribe. And what that tells us is every tribe needs the bread of God. Amen? Every tribe is supposed to be part of the bread of God. Every tribe, every person in every tribe, representative. Everyone in this building needs the bread of life. Everyone in this building needs God's daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Praise the Lord, because now we've all been made, we all can participate in the eating of the bread. Jesus then later would say, the bread is me. This is my body. He takes the bread of the, now that's the Passover bread, but still, Jesus is always symbolic of the bread. And yet, Israel is also symbolic of the bread because the 12 loaves represent Israel themselves. But again, God has always desired that his people and himself, Jesus prayed this in in John 17, that they would be one, even as we are one, the Father. So the bread of Christ and the bread of the body of Christ would actually come together. That we're part of it. You and I, we've been made part of the body, haven't we? 
We, are, we call ourselves. Matter of fact, when I use that terminology with unsaved people, they're like, what in the world are you talking about? We're, uh, this, uh, the body that I serve. What, the body you serve? What are you talking about? Oh, yeah, I'm uh, sorry. Uh, the group of Christians. The parishioners. I have to go further down. The, the, the less understanding of the word is, the more I have to kind of break it down. Oh, I'm speaking of, oh, the people that attend our church. Oh, now I understand what you're talking about. You had me weirded out with that body stuff. Well, Jesus calls us his body. That we've been made the bread with him. But we need his bread. Jesus said this in John 6, 35. He said, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But we don't come to the bread of life just once, do we? Did you come to Jesus once and you've never come to him again? Now, you only need to come once for salvation, praise the Lord. The people that got saved last night in Philadelphia and all across the country, they came to the bread of life and they were given the bread of Christ for salvation. You only need to come once for salvation. But we have to continue to come again and again to eat and digest. Jesus said, my flesh is food indeed. But we know from John 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We come once for salvation, but we come many times. You're here this morning feeding on the Word of God right now. You're having a late breakfast on the bread of Christ. We have to be strengthened by it. We're protected by it. Read Psalm 119, the entire chapter. We're matured by taking in the Word of God. Just like you're, you're physically given strength by the nutrients you eat, unless everything you eat is like cake and ice cream, there's no nutrients there. You do get some enjoyment, but the things that you eat that nourish and actually give strength to the body are, have vitamins, they have minerals, they have nutrients. And so Christ, even though He gives us the eternal life once by coming to him, he continues to actually mature us from little babies in Christ into maturity through the bread, which is the word of God, the table of showbread. It needs to be out there every single day in our lives. And it has to be fresh, doesn't it? Just like the, the bread was actually changed out once a week. It has to be refreshed. You come here once a week, and God wants to give fresh Word, but he also wants you to be taking it on your own. Amen? To be reading, to be understanding what it is that God wants you and I to know. There was a 10-year-old who was becoming quite knowledgeable about the Bible because, her grandmother's, because of her grandmother's teaching. And she asked her grandmother, which virgin was the mother of Jesus? The Virgin Mary or the King James Virgin? A lot of times when new believers come to Christ, the people that got saved in Philadelphia last night and around the country, new believers come to Christ, they don't know anything what the Bible's talking about. And they might not even laugh at that. that why is that funny? I thought there was a King James Virgin. You know? I mean, adults probably think that, that just if you've never grown up around the Lord and you, you have no church background, you have no understanding, but this is why all people 
whether you grew up knowing the word. And as Kirk Franklin said last night, just because you go to church doesn't mean you're a Christian. You could grow up around the Bible, or you could have no concept. You've never heard the Bible. I've met people that don't know anything about the Scriptures. They say, I've never, I, I grew up in a house, and we, we were very non-religious. I don't know anything. So how in the world would they grow? They have to be fed. Amen? Have you ever met a baby that gets zero, I mean nothing, no bottle, no food? How long will the baby live? Not long. You can't say, well, I sure hope that baby survives. We're not going to give it any milk because it looks perfectly happy. Right? No, we would receive the bread uh, as an adult the same way a baby receives milk. And the Lord uses that analogy in 1 Peter 2, too, as newborn babes desire the milk of the word that you may grow thereby. I don't care how long you've been saved, you still need the milk of God's Word. And not just on Sundays, but every day. Job 23, 12 says, I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I, I mentioned on Wednesday night, uh, again, this is just something the Lord has put on me. The first time I heard it was another, I was listening to another pastor share it. But, you know, for me, with breakfast, I say, Lord, I will endeavor to always Make sure I've read your word and prayed before I eat breakfast. Just that the Lord, I, I'm, it's my way of telling the Lord, I consider your word more necessary for me to have a successful day to actually be used by you to do things that are according to your will than to actually have Honey Nut Cheerios first. That the word is more necessary. Do you believe that? That it's more necessary? You know, if you were stranded on an island like John was at Patmos, the Word will be there even when breakfast isn't. The Word, more necessary than our food. Psalm 119.24 says, Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. The testimonies of the Lord are delight. Is it your delight? It may not start out that way, but the more, the more you let God marinate you in his word he'll sprinkle frankincense on you he'll sprinkle salt on you and his words called salt and light it really provides everything the word of god how many of you have ever been comforted by the word of god not on a sunday you needed comfort you've been counseled lord i don't know what to do i don't know how to answer this question i don't know what to how to respond to this situation counsel. It convicts. There's times when you read the Word of God and the Lord convicts you of something you didn't even know you were doing wrong. And the Lord says, that's got to stop. Alter the course. Change that. He convicts. He cleanses. We thank Him for that, right? The Word of God cleanses. It washes us like clean water. It humbles us, doesn't it? Oh, we need, we need to be humble, don't we? It's been well said, when you've conquered every sin, you'll struggle the rest of your life with pride. Humility. The Word of God always humbles us. It puts us in our proper perspective, but it puts God in His proper perspective. It teaches us. It teaches us. I love this one. It reminds us. I know I remind you guys of things that you probably get tired of me reminding of. I'll stop reminding them when the Lord stops reminding me. 
How about that? As long as he keeps reminding me that they're important to him, I'll keep reminding you. And if you think, well, you're just, you're just putting on us your idea of what's important, I'll show you in the Word if you don't believe it. Because I don't ever want to give my opinion, although that sometimes comes out. But the Lord reminds us of what's important to him. And I need to be reminded. Uh, Peter was the one that reminded three times, and I love that he did. Uh, how about the Word of God spurs us? It spurs us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. Spurs us. Spurs us to go beyond what's comfortable. Spurs us to see. When you read about the saints of old, you're like, wow, I don't have that kind of dedication. I don't have that kind of commitment. I don't have that kind of love. Lord, give me that kind. And guess what? When you ask for those kind of things from God, you will receive them. If you're asking for a lotto check, you're probably not going to receive it, right? But if you're asking for more faith, that he'll give. If you're asking for more boldness, that he'll give. If you ask for wisdom, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally to wisdom. Like, I don't want wisdom. I want cash, right? Well, the more you spend time in the Word, the more you become thinking like the Word. Amen? And then the Lord changes your cares and your desires to match God's cares. Now, in the middle of all that, as God changes, He sometimes will give you things that are real blessings that you didn't even ask for. Isn't that great? Some of you have gotten job promotions you didn't even ask for. That's just the blessing of God, isn't it? Some of you got, you know, healed from something that you thought, man, I will, this will never, ever stop. And God, all of a sudden, one day it stops. Now, he will bless, but again, staying in his word helps us to remember. It increases our faith, helps us to spur. So God says, you'll be able to take, as Paul said, my grace is sufficient. You'll be able to continue to move forward and not be fixated on these things that are still thorns in the flesh. Because without spending time in the Word, our focus is always on the thorns and the trials. When we put our mind and our heart in the Word of God, it takes it off those things. It doesn't mean that they don't exist, but we're not fixated on them. We then fix our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith. The Word of God is our resource. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, I believe in Christ like I believe in the Son. Not because I can see it, but because of it, all things are seen. That's what the Word of God does for me and for you. We, God gives us, when we open up His Word, we spend time in it. He gives us perspective, but not any perspective. He gives us His perspective. Then we can say, oh, now I see why you're allowing this in my life. David went through that. Paul went through that. And I see what you did. It produced great victory in their life. We need the bread. We need the show bread. Now there's also a warning if we don't daily partake of God's word. Proverbs 28, 9 says, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Now this is primarily to the uh, unsaved to say that, look, if you don't obey the first commandment to be saved and repent, you're it's highly unlikely you're going to have any satisfaction in the Word of God, correct? But it also is a good reminder for us that if we 
regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us, will not hear our prayers until those things are resolved. That's why daily being in the Word of God, God uses it to cleanse and to put a spotlight on things and to show us well beyond what you hear on a Sunday or on the radio when you're listening. The Lord wants to speak to you personally, and He is the one. The Lord is the one that disciples us. Ultimately, the Lord is the one that disciples us. He uses us to disciple each other, but His Word that's uh, in First John, we talk, it talks about that, that you don't need someone to train you. You have the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit speaks through what? The Word of God, the bread of life. I grabbed some bagels the other day, and I noticed on the, uh, from Panera, I noticed the slogan on the side of the bag. Now, maybe this is because of my marketing background, and I noticed things like that, but you all probably, maybe you've never even read that. So, you mean there's writing on the bag? Yes, there is writing on the bag. I know the stuff in the bag tastes better, but I was just looking at the side of it, and it says this. It says, it all starts with bread. At Panera, we celebrate bread every day, though we think about the way its smell intoxicates innocent bystanders. Pretty deep, huh? But you know what? I looked at that, and I was like, that should be true of Christians, We should celebrate the bread of Christ every day. And we should think about the way, not that it intoxicates innocent bystanders, but the way the Holy Spirit fills us. And then we have an impact on innocent bystanders. You'll have nothing to share with the world if the Lord is not sharing something daily with you. Amen? The bread that I receive from Christ is the fish and loaves that I then take to the 5,000 and then the Lord, but I have to receive it, then I give it out. We'll do this tonight with the harvest outreach. Whatever we receive from the Lord, we give back out to those that have not yet received. It should have that kind of impact on our life. We should celebrate every day being in the Word of God, uh, ingesting and digesting His Word, allowing it to teach us and to instruct us and to really conform us to the image of Christ. Last, uh, last section, we'll close with our reflection. And this covers the lampstand as well as the altar of incense and the anointing oil and the incenses. Um, the lampstand, for those of you that weren't with us back in the, in the previous study of the lampstand, the lampstand is also known by another name called the menorah. Those of you familiar with that word, it's very common in the Jewish community. They refer to the lampstand as the menorah. Of course, menorah, it just means that, lampstand. And uh, this lampstand that was the temple lampstand, not to be confused with the Hanukkah menorah, which you might remember has nine branches, but that's, uh, I don't have time to go into that story, why that's the case. The Hanukkah menorah in December has nine branches, but the temple menorah has seven, which is the number of perfection, the number of God, the seven days of the week, the seven spirits of God, letters to the seven churches. So we understand that the seven, very significant in the holy perfection of the Lord. The central branch is in the middle, and then there's six branches, six, the number of man, comes off the side, and Jesus is the branch, and we are the, he's the vine, or the center branch, and we're the branches. He's the vine, or the the trunk or the main shaft of the plant or the tree, and then we, 
grow out of him. And he says, I am the vine, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. We cannot bear fruit if we don't abide in him. Does, you never will ever, we have a menorah back there. You can see it up on top. That's the uh, seven lampstand menorah. You will never see the lampstand not with the seven branches. I mean, unless somebody tried to destroy it, but the way it's built, it will always be built that way. And the lampstand, we are supposed to stay fixated, abiding, staying firm inside the Lord. And when we do that, we then reflect His glory in our life. The beauty of the, uh, we also see with the altar of incense and also the anointing oil, the beauty of the altar of incense and the wonderful aroma and fragrance of both the incense and the anointing oil, both would have smelled, you can go back and read in chapter 30, uh, they would have smelled wonderful. You know, I like going into places that smell good. How about you? I don't really like going into places that don't smell good. And there's lots of those too. But, you know, when you walk into like, uh, you know, I have three daughters and a wife. We occasionally have to go into that kind of place called Bath and Body Works and places like that. But uh, as long as, even though you might have to stay there longer than you intended to, if you're a guy, at least it smells good while you're there, right? And that's a nice thing. And so the Lord uh, has these fragrances that smell really good. And by the way, it was forbidden by the Lord that anyone could mimic the incense smell or the anointing oil, it was absolutely forbidden. No Israelite could say, I think I know what the compounds that are. I'm going to make it so my house smells like that. Put to death. You could not duplicate. This was God's holy anointing oil and God's incense. It was only to be used in the holy place. It could never be duplicated. You could never say, hey, let's sell this on the streets of Jerusalem someday penalty of death. You could not at all duplicate this fragrance. And by the way, no one can duplicate a born-again experience. Only Jesus can produce it. Amen? The real freight, when you meet someone who's truly been saved, I mean, they have been saved. God did a 180 in their life. They have been converted. They went from Saul to Paul. There's no duplication of it, is there? You can't fake it. Eventually, it's proof that it was a duplication. Only the Lord produces the real article. All the other religions of the world can't duplicate salvation. They can't duplicate a changed life. Why do you think all the religions of the world persecute the true faith? All the leaders, all the isms, communism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Muslim, all of them persecute the true born-again believers. And by the way, they don't persecute all Christian systems. They persecute Christian born-again believers. Big, big difference. But the, uh, in Numbers chapter 6, uh, verses 24 and 26, the Lord says this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You know, when I think about the lampstand there and the lights that were always burning and the light that they would give off. The Lord wants that same light of Christ to be on our countenance. You know, last night as we were greeting people, we had a big smile on our face. Not some fake, goofy thing. We really are happy that we're saved. 
We're genuinely glad they came. Not because we get to add one person to the role here. Not because we want anything from them. There's nothing we want from them. We spent a decent amount of time and money just to have them come and hear the gospel. Because the Lord has put his countenance on our faith, that as his light shine, Jesus said, let your light shine. That like the lampstand, our lights would shine, and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, would be the oil that would actually cause it to shine. And we think about the um, world around us. The world around us, whether they know it or not, is lost. It's confused. It's deceived. It's aimless. How do you think it degenerates to such a point as you see in like Egypt and Syria in a matter of no time, people are putting each other to death. I mean, I'm not just talking about soldiers and warriors putting each other to death. I'm talking about villagers putting other villagers to death. How does it degenerate like that? Because inside a man, the light of life does not exist unless it's the light of Christ. Amen? You realize how wicked and out of control this world could get if God doesn't keep saving sinners? If that doesn't motivate you to be here tonight or to be somewhere and really see people saved, you're not watching what's going on around you. The world is truly, in some places, absolutely imploding because the light of Christ is Well, the enemy is trying to drive out the light of Christ, trying to snuff it out. By the way, that never works. Nero tried it, right? The Babylonians tried it. The Assyrians had tried it. Adolf Hitler tried it. You can never snuff out the light of Christ, but when the light of Christ shines, even in a dark, dark place, the Lord will have his church be set on a hill to shine and draw others. Now, when you shine as a light of Christ, it doesn't mean that everyone wants that light. The same light that some people say, get that flashlight out of my face, is a light that other people say, thanks, I can now find my keys. Right? Same light. Not everybody receives it the exact same way. But we're still called to reflect the light of Christ, aren't we? We're still called like the lampstand. Jesus talked to the seven, writes the letters to seven churches. Some of those churches were not shining anymore. Where were they? They had stopped shining the light. They were focused on other things. They, were, they had pastors that were either fleecing the flock, entertaining the flock, or following the flock. And God says, that is not shining the light. The menorah The lampstand was to shine. The oil of the Holy Spirit was to be the one filling the body of Christ. And we would be a reflection of His holiness. Remember we started off, the holy place, the holy of holies. God desires His church to be what? Holy. Not self-righteous, not holier than thou. Because Jesus already told us what that looks like. He said, if you're really holy, you'll give mercy. If you're not holy, you won't give mercy. And if you're not holy, you won't care about lost souls. You won't care about prayer. You won't care about the word. You'll just care about checklist. But the Lord says, not for my church, that we would be a reflection of his glory. 
I love in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are, being perish- or who are perishing. We not only have the light of Christ, we have the fragrance of Christ. Which again, not everybody likes. Some people are like, Hey, you have way too much Jesus cologne on. And I don't like that smell. So please, take it somewhere else. But other people are like, ah, when you walked in the room, you know, when someone walks in the room with just the right amount of perfume, I'm not going to say cologne, guys. I, I, your cologne does nothing for me. But just the right amount of perfume. And it's like pleasant. And that's what the Lord would have us to be. It doesn't mean that everyone will receive it, but a lot of people will. More will than you expect. The late Dr. Adrian Rogers said, authority and submission are two sides of the same coin. He said, what does that have to do with this? I'll tell you. Authority and submission are two sides of the same coin. Part of our reflection in Christ is if we have a submitted life to Christ and people truly see that our lives are submitted to Christ, then when we speak with confidence the authority of God, people know that it's coming from the Lord, not from you. But if you have no submitted life, you're just a clanging symbol some boisterous uh, people have to know how much you love them, right, before they will hear what the Lord says about your love for them. They have to be able to see you really do, you really do die to yourself. They see that your, your life is submitted to Christ. You're not in it for some uh, specific thing for yourself. You're really surrendered and submitted to Christ. Then, now we see this in the lives of the apostle. Would you agree that Peter and Paul and James and John were submitted men to, to Christ? What did the world know about them? They spoke with boldness and authority. And yet they were submitted men. They were reflections of Christ in their daily life. But that was the opportunity for when they then had to speak the gospel, people said, that's the real article. I may not like it. I may not want to count the cost yet, but that was the truth. That's what people should know about you and me. They would know that we really love them, that your coworker, maybe you've witnessed to them a couple of times, they, they still won't come to this church. They still won't get saved. But when a crisis comes, guess where they're coming? The real article, the submitted, surrendered life. They say, I know you'll speak the truth. Tell me, what does God say about this? That's the way he wants us to have that kind of reflection, that kind of fragrance, that kind of uh, really disposition of giving mercy. Amen?